This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. What I was told is that two fishermen leave Mexico and they go out for the weekend and they're going to catch sharks and a storm hits them and destroys their motor and they start drifting west and west and west and then 14 months later show up near Australia in the Marshall Islands, one alive, one dead. And so at first I thought, no way, nobody can drift that far. So I started to investigate, and it's true. Welcome to How To. I'm science writer David Epstein. On last week's show, we learned how to avoid getting yourself into trouble while traipsing through the wilderness, whether that meant steering clear of rattlesnakes, trying to scare off polar bears, or avoiding an impending avalanche. Definitely check out that episode if you haven't heard it yet. But let's say you're not doing anything unusually risky. You just wake up, have your coffee, maybe check Twitter, and start the workday. When suddenly, out of the blue, you find yourself caught in a life-or-death situation. What then? Yeah, this story is so remarkable that, honestly, David, I, I didn't believe it for a long time. This is Jonathan Franklin. He's a journalist who lives in Chile. And while he survived raising seven daughters, so far, we're having him on the show to talk about the survival of another man, a man he wrote about in his book, 438 Days. And we developed a really strong relationship. So over the course of months and months, he told me the entire tale. And what was his name? Uh, Salvador Alvarenga was a 33-year-old fisherman who was living in Mexico. And he was known as a tiburonero, which means a sharker. Alvarenga had been fishing since he was 11 years old. As he got older, he'd take a small skiff and a buddy and go out on the Pacific for two or three days. Because the area had been fished so heavily, they'd have to get 60 or 70 miles from shore, just using a little outboard motor. There they could fill up a bucket with sharks and then sell them for 50 cents a pound when they got back. But on a Saturday in November of 2012, Alvarenga's usual fishing partner couldn't make it. So he just grabbed a day worker from the beach, a 22-year-old rookie named Exea Kell, who had little seafaring experience. And the two of them go off for a two-day trip, and they can see the storm coming, but they're catching tons of fish. Mm. And they gamble, and they lose, because as they come back to shore, the waves are so huge that they flood the engine, and the engine dies, and they start to drift. How big a ship is this that they're on that we're talking about? The boat that they're on is about the size of an SUV. It's about 20 feet long. It's a tiny boat. No electronics. They're, 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 they have two safety features on this boat. One's a Ziploc bag, and that is where you put your cell phone that in case you're close enough to shore to have <laughs> coverage, you call. And the other is a barrel, because if the boat sinks, you grab onto the barrel and you hang onto the barrel. So that was about the extent mm. of their safety features. And wow. to further hamper any possibility of rescue, the inside of the boat is painted blue and the outside is white, so it perfectly matches the ocean. Oh, geez. And did, did they have emergency rations? I mean, or, you know, uh, water for days? Or? No, they only, they, no, they had a turtle shell, which they used for a, a pot, and some tomatoes and cilantro for so they could do sashimi. 
When do they realize that they are adrift? Within hours of losing their motor, they're getting destroyed by this huge storm. There's massive swells, they're bobbing up and down. They've got this heavy motor in the back. It screws up the kind of weight distribution. So the boat's spinning around, it's just about flipping. All their equipment, uh, which wasn't much, their nets and the fish they had um, are really messing up their uh, stability. So they throw the fish overboard and then a wave washes away their nets and most of their tools. So they're pretty much stripped down to, I think they have a machete, one fish hook and an onion. For days, they bailed the boat by hand, just trying to stay afloat. Screaming at each other, just hours and hours of bailing the boat. So it's not really for a week until the storm ends and the, and the sea goes calm. They look around and say, wow, where are we? On today's episode, How to Survive at Sea, the second in our two-part wilderness series, we'll hear about Alvarenga's harrowing journey, the fine line between a pet and a meal, and some surprisingly useful hallucinations. Alvarenga's experience might seem miles away from her own reality, and it is, but his story of surviving 438 days on the Pacific Ocean, it can teach all of us something about navigating our own stormy waters when it feels like we, too, are lost at sea. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast, or find it wherever you listen. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. We're back with Jonathan Franklin, telling us the story of fisherman Jose Salvador Alvarenga, a real-life castaway who is stuck on a small boat with his fishing companion, Exeacal. At this point, they've been adrift on the ocean for a week. They have presumably no food, no, uh, no way to get anywhere. The storm has stopped. So what do they do? At this point, they've got some matches and they've got their clothes in their back and they've got a pole. So they see like a cargo ship on the horizon. You know, they say later, it looks like a piece of Lego on the horizon. They tie the shirt to the pole and they lay it on fire. And of course, nothing happens. And they have a mirror for shaving that's about the size of a baseball. Uh, they try and you know signal the ship with that little mirror, which of course does nothing. And then they have about a week where it doesn't rain and they just about die of thirst. Uh, Alvarenga said his tongue got so big he, he couldn't even talk. 
But that was actually unusual for this part of the ocean, just north of the equator. It's one of the rainiest places on Earth. Their other lucky break was being in a current that delivered a steady flow of human garbage. They get saved by the rainwater because they start to find water bottles floating in the ocean. So they start to gather uh, these plastic bottles that we all throw out. And then they found an empty oil drum, which they washed out, a plastic one. And so they have 72 little plastic bottles in a big 55-gallon oil drum. And now when it rains, they can save water. And this changes everything. And do they have cover from, from the sun at all? They've got no way to make any kind of tent or tarp. So what they do is they take this styrofoam box, which is where they would store the fish, and they would flip it upside down. It's about the size of a refrigerator. And so all day they live inside this box, all hunched over and crumpled up to the extent that doctors later find they have, you know, slipped vertebrae from being in these weird positions so long. Essentially, Alvarenga and Exayakel huddled under that styrofoam box during the day to avoid getting sunburned and to avoid dehydration. They basically became nocturnal, but they couldn't live on rainwater alone. The first month, they were eating turtles. So they would grab the sea turtles, they would kill them, and then they would um, collect the blood and they would drink glass after glass of the blood, which turns out that it's extremely healthy and uh, definitely gives you energy. And then they would cook the meat. And then there was little sharks that would follow them. And if the sharks were small enough, like less than uh, maybe two or three feet, he would wait till they were next to the boat and he would grab them by the back fin and they would eat the shark livers because it turns out that the shark liver is full of all sorts of oils and uh, nutrition. So they were just had this crazy diet of turtles and shark liver. So he'd pull the sharks into the boat? Yeah, and then they, and then they would knock them out with a propeller and then slice it open and dry the meat. And the liver was like so dark. So they would take the liver and they would smear it on their arms to try and prevent from being sunburned. And it actually worked. But they said the smell was so horrendous that they said, actually, we'd, we'd rather die of sunburn than have to smell because it was just it was wow. insufferable, the smell of you know, smearing shark liver all over your body. Weeks go by like this, then months. Their food supply changes drastically. Once they get further away from shore, the, there's no more turtles and they're eating about six to nine birds a day. They took a pole, like a stick they had, and they tied it from the outboard motor to the top of their box. So the birds would land on the styrofoam, hop on this pole, and for the first five minutes would be very observant. But then they would start preening their feathers and then they'd go to sleep. So Alvarenga would lay very still underneath the pole and then he would swing an arm up quickly, grab the bird by the leg and pull it down. But he would break a wing, which sounds totally cruel. It mm. probably is very cruel. So by doing that, he would have 20 or 30 birds alive on the boat that uh, couldn't fly away. And that became, or another key to his survival was, you know, planning a long-term food supply and being, you know, extremely creative. Necessity is the mother of invention, as the saying goes. And the fishermen invented with every nook and cranny of the skiff. They dissected the uh, outboard motor and they used every single piece from the outboard motor for some sort of tool. You know, the, the plastic casing becomes like a pillow or a water collection device or a bailing device. They, they were able to spear fish by taking long pieces out of the outboard motor, bending them into a hook. Pretty much everything that was on the boat that could, that could become a tool became a tool. So here's our first rule. Use what you've got. 
there's a test in psychology called the alternate uses test. You're given an object, and then you have to come up with as many uses as possible for the thing as you can. With his level of creative resourcefulness, Alvarenga basically passed the real-life version of that test with flying colors. He's a veteran, and he's got this young guy with him. And the young guy is freaking out, so Alvarenga starts telling him stories. Alvarenga says, hey, man, um, we're getting close to shore. I'm going to go ashore and get some oranges. Do you want, uh, you know, what's oranges, or you just want tacos? And the, guy, the other guy, who was half delirious, says, oh, yeah, get me some oranges. So Alvarenga says, okay, hey, I'm going to put the oranges in the corner of the boat, save them for later. And he creates this alternative reality where he's describing what actually is going on on shore. And this keeps Exiakel from going completely nuts because Exiakel wants to jump overboard and kill himself. What about the, the sort of personal conflict side? Was that difficult to, to be together that way? They had huge fights. They had huge fights. They went at it um, because Alvarenga was a badass fisherman who partied his brains out and would make a couple hundred bucks and spend it and had three girlfriends and was living the, the wildlife. And the younger guy was an evangelical Christian who had been told by his uh, congregation that someone had a dream that he went to sea and that he would die in the ocean very soon. So he is freaking out. He's sure that it's God's will that he's going to die because they've already told him before he left that somebody had a vision he would die at sea. And Alvarenga had a totally different relationship with religion. He always figured if you never went in the Catholic Church, you didn't have to abide by its rules. So he never entered a church, and he felt that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, disobeying God because he never promised anything to God. So one guy like looked at church with a total wary eye, mm-hmm. and the other one was singing in the choir. And so there was quite a, a conflict here between these two kind of world outlooks. But Alvarenga's imagination helped keep them both sane. They had tons of downtime, and a lot of the downtime was at night. So they would just lay on their back. Um, the evangelical uh, gentleman was a fantastic singer. So he would sing, and Alvarengo, who was not a great singer, would also sing. So they do this chorus. One of them would be inside the box, one would be outside. So that you'd have the two voices going back and forth. They would play lots of games with the stars. They would look at constellations. And they could, it was funny because basically you've got one guy uh, who's very evangelical and has deep faith. And so he's seeing he's seeing all sorts of spiritual images. And the other guy is a party monster who's probably seeing tequila bottles. And when they saw airplanes go by, they would imagine out loud, what do you think they're having? And they would just create these amazing feasts about what the people in the airplanes were eating. And so, you know, it's mm. definitely a sign of desperation when you can you know, fantasize about airplane food. In addition to his imagination, Alvarenga was bolstered by a deep sense of responsibility. So Alvarenga develops a really strong sense of caregiving, and he's taking care mm. of this young man. And in the process, he's, he's reinforcing his inner strength. Because throughout history, when you look at who survives and who dies, people who have to care for others are in a much better psychological position. When you have a deeper mission, when you have a broader responsibility, it proves to be one of the most powerful tools to motivate your own day-to-day existence. Here's our next rule. This might seem counterintuitive if you're looking out for your own survival, but actually caring for someone else, it can provide an important sense of purpose. And so, despite their very different backgrounds, Alvarenga and Exeakel formed a deep bond. About 10 weeks into the journey, the men figured out by tracking full moons that it was around Christmas time. And to keep spirits up, they decided to have a special Christmas dinner. Two birds each. 
And so Alvarenga, who's handy with a knife, fillets them both. And they, you know, two birds for me, two birds for you. And they have their official dinner. And right after he starts eating, Ezequiel starts to gag. And then bubbles start to come out of his mouth. And he's obviously getting very sick very quickly. And they can't figure out what's going on until, you know, they go back to the carcass of one of the birds and they open up the stomach. And in the stomach, they find a small poisonous yellow snake. And these snakes are very common in this part of the world, in this part of the uh, Pacific. And so he's been poisoned because the bird ate the poison snake and they passed an entire night where they think he's going to die. And Alvarenga nurses him back to health, but never again will he eat with confidence. So he stops mm-hmm. eating and he shrivels and he shrivels and he won't eat. And Alvarenga puts the food on toothpicks, which are the vertebrae from the fish they're eating or the birds they're eating. And he tries to baby him and feed him, but Exiakel is terrified of food. And finally Exiakel stops eating and he dies in Alvarenga's arms. And now he's really alone. When we come back, we'll dive into the toughest part of Alvarenga's journey, the awful, total, and seemingly endless isolation. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. We're back with Jonathan Franklin, author of the book 438 Days. And just a heads up, this next part of the story contains some fairly gruesome descriptions and talk about suicide. When we left Alvarenga, he was devastated. His young companion, Exeakel, had just died after 10 weeks lost at sea. So instead of dumping the body, he sits the body up. And for about a week, he talks to the body. He pretends like his buddy's alive. He wakes up in the morning and says, hey man, what's it? How's breakfast? What's going on? And then he starts to imagine that the corpse is speaking back to him. And so he imagines the corpse is saying, oh, death is a beautiful place. Come visit me in death. And Alvarengo will say, I don't want to die. Are you crazy? I'm not going to die. So he has these kind of hallucinatory conversations with the corpse over the course of a week. And then he kind of snaps out of it and decides that he needs to do a burial at sea, so he strips the clothes off his buddy because they're useful, and he just lowers his buddy into the ocean at night and lets him go. As awful as it was, losing Exeakel, it did mean that Alvarenga only needed half as much food and water. But what he, actually what he does is he starts using the caretaking uh, 
motivation on himself. So the exact same tools that he used to keep his buddy alive, he now flips around and he tells himself stories aloud. So he'll imagine that he's walking down the beach and he's seeing some some girl he's always been flirting with, or he imagines going to his favorite restaurant and ordering his favorite dish. He does this for hours every day, and it's this alternative reality that is so realistic that keeps him alive. And he'll say, he said, Jonathan, the best meals of my life were those imaginary meals I had at sea. He said, the best sex mm-hmm. I ever had in my life was the imaginary sex I had out in the middle of the ocean. Here's another rule. Create an alternate reality. It might sound odd, but if you want to survive a desperate circumstance with no finish line in sight, you might have to cultivate the will to live. Now, thankfully, we can usually take that for granted in normal life. But you don't have Netflix out in the middle of the ocean. So fantasizing about other worlds, that can distract you from your difficult reality. It can give you hope for the life you could someday have again. And Alvarenga could get pretty creative to pass the time. So what he does is he, uh, he entertains himself. So he he's catching a few puffer fish that, you know, the, 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 they're like the size of a tennis ball. So what he does mm-hmm. is he, he puts like eight birds on one side of the boat and eight on another. And he puts the puffer fish in the middle. And because the puffer fish looks like it's food, the, the birds start pecking it and it moves and rolls a little bit. So he imagines that it's actually a, a soccer match and that it's Mexico, his team, against Brazil, you know, their mortal enemies. So he's, he spends hours just narrating these you know, crazy kind of bird soccer games and pretending that uh, Mexico always trounces Brazil in these games. Like, like Brazil <laughs> gets whomped every time. And he notices that one of the birds is kind of different from the others. And so he adopts this and he actually starts to take this bird into his little shelter and he learns to whistle and imitate the sounds and he feeds the birds special meals. So he has a pet and the pet bird who he names Pancho becomes a really important part of his survival because with Pancho, he's not alone. You know, he can, he can whistle and Pancho will whistle back. He's got a, some sort of communication going on and the bird sleeps with him and, and he feeds the bird, you know, out of a little cup that he's got. Wow. And did Pancho survive the rest of the journey? Well, what happens is that Alvarenga at one point is getting hungrier and hungrier because he's in a place where there's just not that many birds. You know, he's only got six birds left and four. Finally, he runs out of birds uh, and he looks at Pancho and he's like, Pancho, you know, we've got another couple of days. And after mm-hmm. another couple of days, he still isn't a food. So he said at night he covered, you know, covered Pancho's head and he broke Pancho's neck and then he ate Pancho. Wow. How long into the journey was that? It's definitely the second half of the journey, but when he loses Pancho, um, he's really depressed as well. This is a bird he loved. And then he decides he's actually got to eat his um, his pinky because he's so hungry that he's got nothing to eat. And so he, first he eats his beard. He, uh, he chops off his beard and then he chops it up into little pieces and then he eats all his fingernails. And then he's eating wood pulp, like he's shaving pieces of wood off the boat and eating the wood pulp, which is not really helping. Mm. So he, he gets a whole plan where he's going to chop off his pinky, but he actually freaks out, not because he might be eating his pinky, but he's not totally sure he can staunch the blood flow. So he said it was actually, it was fear of, the, of bleeding to death, not fear of eating his own pinky. Wow. It was about this time that his boat gets pulled into a gigantic, gentle whirlpool a circular current teeming with life. So suddenly there's plenty to eat. But more than that, it was Alvarenga's sense of humor that got him through his most desperate moments. 
he would spend hours talking to the ocean. He would say, poor ocean, you must be tired. You've been carrying me for thousands of miles. Why don't you just, you know, throw me on a beach or something? Like, mm. you know, get rid of me. And to the birds, he would lecture the birds. The birds would land on his styrofoam and he would say, birds, man, if I were you, I would not go so far from shore. And I later interviewed uh, survival psychologists who work closely with the British Navy. And they said that when they interview survivors of a lifeboat, you know, there's 10 people in the lifeboat and only four live. One of the key factors is their sense of humor. And that those wow. who are able to keep a sense of humor often stay alive. And he actually said, you know, a deficit and a sense of humor can be fatal. If you don't laugh, you might die. And, and so what would you, if you were, let, let's say you were lost at sea tomorrow, what would you most keep in mind from everything you've learned in the hope of surviving yourself? First of all, I would say that the mental health is way more important than the uh, physical health. So I would keep myself busy doing a million different things. I, you know, if I had a piece of rope, I would learn to tie a thousand different kinds of knots. If I was staring at the sky, I would memorize a thousand constellations. Do not like dwell. If you dwell, you're gone. But Jonathan said that actually there was one thing that Alvarenga did dwell on, and that was key to his survival. He'd been a terrible father. He had totally blown off his daughter, who was now 12, and had always promised himself he would go back and be a good dad. And he said over and over again, you know, I have to come back. I want to give her her quinceanero. And so he couldn't bear the thought of dying without resolving uh, his promise to himself and to his daughter to come back and be a more present dad. But that strong resolve, it, it didn't mean there weren't moments he considered giving up. One day, another ship passed right by his boat. And it was so close that he thought it was going to get rammed. And he, at this point, his clothes are pretty ragged. His beard is very ragged. And he's jumping up and down. And there was three men fishing off the back of the boat. And he said they just waved at him and kept going. Oh, my God. At one point, Jonathan says, Alvarenga actually got so depressed that he started plotting how to kill himself. So he's got two ways to kill himself. Either he can chum the water and get tons of sharks there and then jump in, or he can uh, sharpen uh, one of the spears coming out of the, the remnants of the outboard motor and then jump up and see if he can pierce his heart instantly on one of these spears. So he's going back and forth and he can't do it because of his daughter. Again, he can't leave his daughter uh, with this image of an of a AWOL dad. So he doesn't kill himself, but he gets pretty close. And then 13 and a half months into his journey, Alvarenga started to notice that things were changing. The bird life has changed, the, f the fish swimming underneath him. It smells organic. He starts to smell like, you know, the smell of dirt. And uh, then he sees a piece of land and he's headed right towards it. And he washes ashore on a deserted island, which is the last thing he could have possibly have hit. If he missed that, it was like another 2,000 miles to Japan. I mean, he was gone. There's no way he was going to make it. The ocean finally decided it was tired of carrying Alvarenga and threw him up on one of the southernmost Marshall Islands, a speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Go ahead, Google map the Marshall Islands. See how many times you have to zoom in to see that there's even anything there. He's got his knife and he just crawls up on the shore and he just, he just, he said he just grabbed a handful of sand and he, he couldn't really walk because his legs were so weak. So he pulls himself up on the beach and he falls asleep. And then he hears something that changes his life you know, forever. He hears a rooster. 
And when he hears the rooster, he knows you know, humans are near. So he starts kind of crawling across this little island, which is tiny. It's probably, you know, it's by the size, a couple tennis courts. And he sees a shack and a couple from the Marshall Islands come out and they're the only two inhabitants of this other island, which is right next door. And they see this animal climbing down the beach. They, they don't even think it's human. And then the wife says, uh, wait, 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 look, look, it's a person. And Alvarenga gets down on his hands and knees and puts his hands together like praying for help. So they carry him over to their house and they start cooking and he eats and eats. They're making him pancakes. After he spends a few days recovering, they reach out to the local U.S. ambassador who gets in touch with Mexico. Then the Mexicans say, yes, we lost a boat with that name, you know, a year and a half ago. Yes, we, uh, that's, you know, because there's still, you can read like the serial number and the name on the boat. And so that's how there's first indications that, you know, oh my God, this could actually be true. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. And and what was his homecoming like? I mean, did he go, did he in fact go back and, and raise his daughter? His initial homecoming was terrible because the press swarms him because it's a remarkable story and he wants nothing to do with the press. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. He wants to forget this thing. He's like, he hasn't seen humans in months. He's terrified. So, but when he actually makes it home and the press kind of dies off, the daughter was totally shocked because she, she had been always told that the sharks had eaten daddy. So to have daddy come back was a big deal. Here's our final rule. When you're in a desperate situation, remember your loved ones, not just how much you care about them, but what you still owe them and yourself. What relationships do you want to strengthen? What more do you want to do with your life? Facing down death can be a useful reset for thinking about what kind of life you want to live. Have you stayed in touch with him? Do you know what his life is like now? He called me yesterday. Oh, wow. How, how is it? How's he doing? He's doing good. We're, uh, we're actually making a movie now. We're pretty advanced in making a, making a movie about, um, about this tale. And there's a really, really positive message here because when I asked Alvarenga early on, I was like, why do you want to do a book? And he said, he said, look, I could have killed myself. I had no food. I was burning in the sun. I was alone. You know, if I can survive, so can you. And if one person doesn't kill themselves because they read 438 days, then that's a success for me. So this is the end of our special two-part series on surviving in the wild. We've encountered venomous snakes, avalanches, polar bears, and now the largest ocean on Earth. The ancient Stoic philosophers made memento mori, or reminding oneself about death, a central part of living well. And I don't want to be morbid about it, but our guests, while learning how to stay alive in the wild, they learned a thing or two about how to live when not in the wild. And so did I. And I hope you did too. Thank you to Jonathan Franklin for sharing Alvarenga's story. Be sure to look for his book, 438 Days, and someday soon, the movie version. And since we talked about depression and thoughts of suicide, we wanted to note, if you or anyone you know are in crisis or having thoughts of suicide or need help immediately, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline anytime at 1-800-273-TALK. Or you can find help at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Do you have a question about how to get through a difficult time? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen and Rosemary Belson produced the show. 
Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg is not lost at sea. We promise. He's just still surfing. I'm David Epstein. See you next time.